Epigenetics Podcast Episode 23. Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Leonid Mirny from MIT. And I'm happy, happy to talk to you now online. Thank you, Leonid, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you received your PhD in biophysics from Harvard University. After a few years as a junior fellow at Harvard Society of Fellows, you were appointed to the MIT faculty in 2001, joining the MIT Health Sciences and Technology Division and the Department of Physics. Then in 2015, you became a co-director of the new Center for 3D Structure and Physics of the Genome at UMass Medical School and MIT, and you are still there today, right? That's right. Thank you for having me. <laughs> a question I'll ask to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology slash physics in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Um, I actually was always interested in physics and biology. Uh, and even in high school, I was, I was fascinated with both subjects and started reading books on that. Uh, the first book that really pulled me into biophysics uh, was a book by Russian biophysicist Maxim Frank-Kamenetsky, who is now a professor at the Boston University. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's called something like The Most Important Molecule. And it was, it's, it, it, it was a short popular book about DNA Uh, DNA physics, bending, uh, DNA supercoiling, so all this stuff from 1980s. Um, I was I was truly fascinated by that and want to pursue PhD in uh, want to pursue the first degree in uh, in biophysics actually somewhere in the face of physics and biology. Uh, it was a bit challenging in the environment of the late Soviet Union. Uh, <laughs> To, 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 to Again, we had fantastic education, but it was mostly in, in, in fundamental areas of physics. Uh, but I, I managed to find, a, a, I basically did my, my undergrad at the institute, which is uh, kind of an equivalent of MIT. So it's like a technology institute in Moscow, um, where I studied fundamental physics and at the same time biological physics. And I was also supplementing this by some classes that I was I was commuting to at the Moscow State University and another uh, technology institute that was more into bio. Uh, so, so I was always kind of uh, interested at trying to understand principles, uh, kind of physical principles that govern biological systems. So when we go back in time a little bit, uh, the title of your PhD thesis then was Protein Folding, Folding from Lattice Models to Real Proteins. Uh, so in the beginning of your scientific career, you focused more on proteins and their structure. So how did you then get interested in protein folding? Um, so, so in fact, my undergraduate thesis is on chromosome organization. Okay. Back from Moscow. Uh, One of my, so I had two advisors back in Moscow that sort of, they were both interested in chromosome, chromosome folding, again, back in the 1980s. Uh, so my undergraduate thesis was on chromosomes and, and, and loops in chromosomes, the way we knew them back then. Uh, then after that, I got, again, as I got pulled into protein folding because of, again, exciting biological physics. It's, it's an amazing area of, of biology. 
where you have, it sounds incredibly simple, you have a protein, the protein is in the solvent, and it spontaneously folds and acquires a unique three-dimensional structure. Um, I started working on this problem with Michael Levitt, uh, who is now at Stanford. I myself moved to Israel, uh, where I was at the Weizmann Institute, uh, and again was, was, was interested in understanding fundamental principles of, again, physical mechanisms underlying protein folding, after master's degree uh, at the Weizmann Institute, I moved to Harvard and then uh, worked a little bit with Martin Karplus and then started working with Eugene Shaknovich on, on protein folding. Uh, but at the same time, this lab that I joined was interested in kind of understanding very, very fundamental principles and did an amazing progress. And I was trying to see whether this fundamental principles can be kind of connected to the reality of protein folding. To real proteins, and that's hence the title of my thesis: connecting connecting models to to real proteins. So and that's was I think. Sorry, sorry. Was it wet lab work or was it modeling computer work? No, it was it was all computational work. It was all computational theoretical work. Uh, but again, I was trying to see whether whether some of the principles that were learned back then, um, principles kind of that that govern protein evolution and protein folding, can be applied to actually predict structures of proteins. Um, and we did, we, did, we, we did some progress along, along these lines and sort of understood what can or cannot be done. Um, and basically, when I realized that sort of the, the progress using simple models in this field is rather limited and models need to become very, very complicated, kind of, I, I felt that the, that the elegance uh, of this field, like the simplicity, yeah. was, was a bit fading. Uh, and as we know now, the most, the most successful methods are machine learning methods. Uh, which is great uh, for practical applications, but from the physics point of view, it's a bit disappointing. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, at least judging from what I found in PubMed, um, your, face your first paper on DNA and transcription reguli regulation was in 2007 in PNAS, titled How Gene Order is Influenced by the Biophysics of Transcription Regulation. So how did you then make the switch from protein structure to epigenetics Transcription regulation, or was this like your long-time goal to go back to the chromatin that, folding? You're absolutely right. It was my long-time goal to go back to to, to chromatin folding and to, to gene regulation. Uh, so this were early 2000s, actually. Yeah, when I was a junior fellow at Harvard Society of Fellows, so basically an independent postdoctoral fellow, and these three years at Society of Fellows gave me the freedom and the flexibility to explore some of my old passions in, in an interest in gene regulation. But the way to approach gene regulation, again, I started with the physical physical kind of questions. And obviously sort of gene regulation starts with the transcription factor binding its side at the promoter. And the question is, how does a protein know where to bind? How does a protein, how can a protein find its side in mere seconds, minutes? Uh, and, that, and that kind of made me work about first on the uh, on the question of how proteins interact with DNA and how proteins search for their site on DNA. Uh, and this, this were kind of works first for myself and then for my early lab in, in the in 2000s. Uh, and that, that, this were the first steps toward, towards kind of understanding some physical mechanisms underlying gene regulation. And I still believe that gene regulation is an exciting field with, with lots of interesting physics at many, many levels and epigenetics broadly. So did you did you start now also modeling in, in computer models and, and things like that? 
that was okay. So so I continued I continued being a theoretician uh, in a sense that I was I was doing computer models, but again trying to connect this to reality and the, the connections connections to reality uh, of connect, connecting these models to the, to available data. So the most abundant data again back then were, were data on protein evolution and evolution of DNA sites. And I was interested in what can we learn about the way proteins recognize DNA from the way from from evolutionary from the patterns of evolutionary conservation, uh, how amino acids change. Some amino acids don't change in proteins; some change as their function changes. So this would be very exciting kind of residues that determine specificity of proteins. So I want I want to kind of model this uh, and at the same time analyze evolutionary data. And then as gene expression data started to, to become kind of uh, available and sort of the, the whole field of measuring uh, RNA levels uh, had matured, I certainly got, got interested in this, in this aspect. Uh, but that, that was all theoretical work and, and data analysis, yeah. data analysis work. So then in 2009, you were part of the HICI paper together with Eris Lieberman Aiden, Job Decker, and I think this was then the Yeah, the big starting point of your research in the area of three-dimensional organization of chromosomes in this uh, field. How did this cooperation uh, come together? You are cooperating, uh, I guess, what we can see from the earlier publications, quite a lot with Joop Decker. And uh, can you shortly describe us what was your results and your role in this um, in this space? Right. So, so, so basically. Um Kind of so 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 just just to finish the previous thought. Yep. So, so my 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 general approach is to to combine biophysical models with 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 genomics data, and that that kind of provides an advantage of kind of not just having models that are abstract in the air, but connected to reality, but also not just analyze data, the way, kind of not not just number crunching in a sense of uh, finding correlations, but finding mechanisms that that underlie. Uh, phenomena that we see or kind of patterns that we see in the data. So, so the way we, so, so in this 2009 paper, uh, the exciting development was obviously the first high C data set. Uh, I was first very optimistic thinking that maybe we, we can just learn structures, kind of fold chromosomes from, from first high C data. Um, And in part, that was connected to my master's thesis that I did at the Weizmann Institute, where what we were trying to do is actually trying to predict protein structures from contact maps, essentially equivalents of, of high C, if you wish, but for a single protein. And that that was my that was my my master's thesis. And so I was very excited that maybe a similar thing can be done in in the in the field of chromosome folding. Um, Then later realized that it's, it's much more challenging in chromosome folding because chromosomes are not nearly as structured as individual proteins are. Uh, and, uh, and we get pictures that are average over populations of cells. Uh, so, uh, so the way we started working on this, so, so Eris Liberman was, was a graduate st student at, at our program. Uh, and he told me about, about his research. I was really excited about that. We started collaborating on this project. He introduced me to Job Decker. Uh, and that's how this project all started. Uh, I think the most exciting development of uh, that 2009 paper and our contribution, contribution of my lab, was to realize that the scaling of the contact probability uh, in high C data tells us that the way chromatin is folded is not just as a random bag of spaghetti. The chromosomes are not just randomly stuffed inside, inside the nucleus, 
uh, that uh, th this the sole notion that they're not randomly organized actually was not obvious because earlier papers like in the in the early 90s uh, people were from from very again scarce microscopy data as we can judge this this kind of field now you see so so people people were trying to infer how chromosomes are folded and were largely approximating this by random polymers saying essentially chromosome is just a random, uh, walk or random, randomly folded protein. So the first high C data clearly showed that it's not random. Uh, and then we were looking for a model that would explain that. Uh, and we realized that models that were proposed actually in polymer physics uh, about uh, 30 years, 20 years earlier, uh, in fact, proposed by one of my former advisors, Eugene Shaknovich and his collaborators, uh, may actually fit the data. But to compare this old model from 1980s to the date of 2009, uh, we had to do simulations. And a graduate student in my lab, Max Imakayev, who's also in that paper, he started doing these first simulations of, first again in my lab, first polymer simulations of chromosome folding, uh, trying to, to see whether the model of what, what was called back then crump, crumpled globule or fractal globule, uh, whether this, this model can actually match the data. And indeed, so Max's simulations have clearly shown that indeed this old model that was proposed based on very kind of general theoretical considerations as a way polymer is folded if, if it's compacted, reproduces, matches the data. And that was a really, really exciting moment. Uh, and so without the simulations, we wouldn't be able to really compare uh, this theoretical work from 80s to, to uh, to the data, to high C data, and that kind of set the theme for my lab because we realized that instead of trying to model chromosomes from the data, the way we were doing for proteins, we had we had say NMR data and we tried to fold the protein. Here we took a different approach. We say we have data, we observe certain patterns. Let's try different models, kind of uh, bottom-up approach. Let's try different models and see whether these models can reproduce the data. Or what, what do I need to do to the polymer fiber, to the chromatin fiber, such that, it, such that, the, organ, that the way it's organized matches the high C data? And, polymer, and computer simulations became absolutely central to answering these questions, because you can say, okay, what if it's looked this way? Does it really match the data? What if it's organized in a different way? Does it really match the data? So, so, so that's basically became our approach of trying to find mechanisms and principles of chromosome organization such that, they, that we can reproduce high C data. And 2009 was certainly an exciting year for us. Uh, <laughs> I met Job Decker, and since then we've been very closely collaborating, exchanging emails, calling each other. And, but, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I also want to get him on the show, so maybe we, you can introduce me. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, then... Uh, those simulations lead to the 2016 papers where you describe your loop extrusion theory, the loop extrusion mechanism? Uh, uh, so so the, 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 the path indeed from, from 2009 to 2016 uh, went through many, many, many other, many other papers where we were analyzing high-C data. Perhaps the most important in this, in this trajectory was the 2013 paper with Job Decker, where we tried to find a model, and we found a model to match mitotic chromosome organization. 
and actually loop extrusion ideas come largely or originally come from the concepts of mitotic chromosome folding. Okay. Uh, what was happening back then in 2013 is at 12, uh, we were looking for a model that would reproduce the folding of a mitotic chromosome. Uh, and it was, it was very challenging because it was very hard to find a polymer model that would actually match the data. Uh, and at that moment, I met with, with John Marco, and John Marco told me about his work on loop extrusion. Uh, he said, oh, what if there is such a process where, where a protein can land on DNA and form a progressively larger loop? And I listened to him and said, yeah, that's interesting, but would it really match the reality? And we said, okay, let's, let's try this in simulations, because what loop extrusion can give us uh, in the mitot, in the, if, if you have many loop extruders, you will have one loop form, and then the next loop will be formed right next to it, and the next loop will be formed right next to it. And that, that would create an array of loops. And this is vastly different from the picture of mitotic chromosome that was that, that, that some had before, where essentially you would just randomly cross-link different pieces of DNA, where you would just randomly bridge a different piece of DNA, because then loops would be random. And we'll say, no, then what, what if loops are not random? What if it's an array of consecutive loops? So we tried this in the models, and indeed we found that loops, consecutive loops that emerge from loop extrusion would beautifully reproduce data for mitotic chromosome that your Decker's lab have obtained in 2012, 11, 12. And so that resulted in this 2013 paper, and that seeded the idea in my group that loop extrusion might be the mechanism that is operating at least in mitotic for mitotic compaction. Uh, in 2014, we started again after the ben, uh, ben Renz and Edith Hurd's papers on TEDs came out in 2013, we started looking for a mechanism that would explain formation of TADs during interface. So we said, okay, we tried lots of different things. Actually, the funny part of this is that I was trying to, to stimulate my group to start <laughs> looking at the mechanisms that, that lead to TAD formation, and nobody wanted to work on that. Uh, they said, oh, Leonid, you know, this is so complicated. But we were lucky because we had a, we had a high school student in the lab because we, MIT has a fantastic outreach program such that high, high school students from Boston area can come to, to uh, MIT labs and do research. The program is called Primes, like prime numbers. Yep. It's organized at the mathematics department. So we had a student from that program, uh, Carolyn Lou. And uh, students said, okay, let Carolyn do this. We'll help her. So, so two graduate students who mentoring high school student who was trying different models for a year. And we tried various physical, we tried making linkers long and flexible. We tried making linkers between TEDs short and rigid and bulky, and nothing really worked. Uh, but she, Carolyn was very patient, and so she was trying different things. And then at some moment in, in 2013, uh, early 14, um, graduate students, again, Max Imakayev, the same person who did crumpled and fractal globule folding in 2009, and Jeff Judenberg, who is now a faculty at the University of Southern California. So, so they were mentoring Carolyn Lu, and they said, okay, Carolyn, why wouldn't we try loop extrusion? Let's try loop extrusion and put boundaries at the boundaries of TEDs. Maybe that would work. And to our great surprise, it did work. <laughs> uh, 
But graduate students were still very skeptical. They were saying, look, you're not getting tests the way they look in, in 2013 being Rand's paper, like very uniform square squares. They have some dots and stripes, like corner peaks, features that nobody had seen before that. And uh, at, the, at the end of 2014, Ares Liberman's paper came out, which was much higher resolution, high C data, and it did observe all these dots and stripes and say, wow, it looks like our simulations actually make sense. So they, so, predict, so, they predicted the data in, in a sense. So exactly, exactly, the simulations actually predated and predicted that, that these features should be present because nobody saw them, we were very pessimistic. And so, so when, when we saw this data coming out, say, okay, that means that actually our model makes sense. And we started, so, so and then great students got more involved. And so they started, kind of, they, they got very energized. And we started quantitatively comparing uh, TEDs to, to what, what came out of simulations. And that led to the whole, the whole notion that loop extrusion can be the mechanism that forms, forms TEDs. And at the same time, we decided to go back to mitosis and ask what kind of things uh, loop extrusion can do for mitotic chromosomes. Uh, and that led to, to, to a series of papers with John Marco, uh, uh, led by Anton Golobrotko, who is now a group leader in Vienna, at IMBA in Vienna. Um, and uh, Anton and John uh, together kind of tried to, so, so, so it's a collaboration between my group and, and John's group. So, so we together tried to see what kind of structures loop extrusion can generate in mitosis and to our great surprise, we saw that loop extrusion, when acts on a single chromatin fiber, uh, can create beautiful structures that look like chromosomes. They're like compacted chromosomes, uh, prophase chromosomes. They're elongated. Uh, they have a scaffold. They're linearly organized. Again, that was, that was theory, no comparison to experiments. Uh, just the morphology, just the shapes, no high C. Uh, and then the other, the other notion was that it can segregate two cystic chromatids. So that was a hypothesis. Uh, again, Kim Naismith put forward this hypothesis in, in 2001, but nobody really followed on that. So we said, okay, let's test this. Can loop extrusion really segregate cystic chromatids? And again, simulations were absolutely central to answering this question. And it turned out that yes, loop extrusion and activity of topoisomerase two together would be sufficient to segregate two cystic chromatids. Again, simulations cannot tell you how things really happen, but they can tell you what's, what's possible. And so, so that, this, this was this breakthrough in 2016, and, and yeah, basically 2016, 15 and 16. How did you then move on? Did you try to, to map the factors? Did you do simulations on which factors can play a role if you take them away or how did you move on? Yes. So, 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 so at that moment, so that was that was uh, late 2016. So, uh, I presented this. I presented loop extrusion the first time actually in Heidelberg at the EMBL uh, meeting in in May of 2015, um, and then spoke about this at the conference in Israel in in June of 2015, and that was that was really well accepted by by the field and basically all the all. Many main players were at this conference in 2015 uh, and were excited, saying, "Okay, it solves lots of problems, but how we're gonna how we're gonna test that?" And in 2015, I met with two of our collaborators, long-term uh, long collaborators, Francois Spitz, who is now at U Chicago, 
and uh, Elthash Nora, who is at the faculty at UCSF. Uh, and with them, we started pursuing uh, possible mutants. And Elthash was, was working on a mutant of CTCF. And again, simulations made very specific predictions for what's going to happen when CTCF is removed. Uh, and uh, uh, Francois uh, worked on the mutant of NIPBL, a cohesion loading factor, or maybe a cohesion processivity factor, as we now understand it, uh, basically getting rid of cohesion on cohesion activity on chromosomes. Uh, and that, and again, these two collaborations were absolutely central to the to the progress, to our progress, and I think to understanding that loop extrusion is really a mechanism, not just a fantasy of theoreticians. Uh, and so, so that led to two papers in 2017. One was, was uh, led by Alfash Nora, and another was, was the group of Francois Spitz. Uh, I think conceptually, that was a very interesting moment, uh, because that was the moment when the theory was ahead of experiments, and this is rare in biology. Yeah. Typically, typically, theory plays a role of observing correlations, uh, at most, at best, and here we basically said there should be a mechanism. And we suggest in our paper that that's cohesive, these are SMC proteins that do loop extrusion, and CTCF is a boundary element. The function of CTCF, according to our paper, is to stop loop extrusion, to pause this process. Uh, these were very, very clear predictions. Uh, people were, in fact, talking about, about loop extrusion very, very early on. They were early papers. Uh, from 1980s, suggesting the mechanism of loop extrusion uh, as a mechanism to bring together to bring together elements of the VDJ recombination system, such that they meet each other and you can you can cut, cut out. So for the VDJ locus, as, as I'm sure your listeners know, is a is a locus involved in generating in generating a, a diversity of, uh, of of antibodies uh, and uh, so, so certain parts of chromosomes need to be cut out, and people have suggested in 1980s that uh, VDJ recombination, VDJ locus uses something like what we would call now loop extrusion. Uh, there were papers from 1990s where Art Riggs, one of famous American geneticists who expressed first human gene in bacteria, uh, in 1990s he suggested that there is a process that he, that he called DNA reeling, where DNA loops are reeled on chromosomes and this way compact chromosomes. So this idea was appearing maybe once every once a decade. And then Kim Naismith paper suggested that SMCs might be actually doing loop extrusion. But then it was one paper in a decade and then 10 years of no activity. <laughs> Primarily because again this was this was a great hypothesis, but without computer simulations you cannot really compare them to the data. And there were no data to compare them to, to an extent. Uh, so so in 2015, we were indeed at this moment when uh, the theory was put forward, suggesting very specific mechanisms and specific players, and, and mutants had to be done to actually test this. And so, so this was uh, this were our collaborations with with Alfash Nora and Francois Spitz. Uh, there was even a, a kind of a, Nature wrote an interesting feature about this that kind of joking even that this is like loop extrusion is like a Higgs boson of your field. Uh, uh, some, something that kind of you predict and wait to be that to be to be found experimentally. 
Um, so what do you think is the driving force? I mean, something has to be active in moving the DNA through the coasin rings. Uh, what do you think is the driving force here? Uh, I, I think the driving force is the actual activity of the SMC, SMC proteins. So I think that I'm still kind of sticking to our old prediction that SMC proteins are molecular motors that extrude loops. Uh, uh, how they actually achieve this, we still don't know. It's an absolutely novel mechanism. It's, it's unlike uh, molecular motors that we know operate in cytoplasm, uh, act, act, uh, uh, that work on actins and microtubules. Uh, so, so cohesins do not work uh, uh, unless uh, kinesins and myosins. They, they extrude, and that, this activity has never been observed before, so we don't know how they work as molecular motors. Um, they look strikingly like molecular motors uh, because they have two ATPase domains and two long and flexible arms. So they do look like kinesins and myosins and a little bit like dynins. Uh, so maybe it's a single cohesion ring, like some experiments suggest, or some SM single SMC ring. Maybe these are dimers of SMCs. I think the jury is still out whether, whether the active subunit is a single ring or, or dimers. Uh, we don't know how they work. That's that's an exciting, exciting, again, physical and biophysical question. How does a, this motor work? Uh, some pessimism might be coming from from the experience with with kinesins and myosin because it took it took many decades to understand how they work, and there is still no complete agreement on how myosins and kinesins work on microtubules and actin filaments. Uh, but there is still a good understanding. Uh, so I think what, what in the next, maybe my, my prediction would be that in the next three to five years, we would get a very, very, we would get a much, we would get some a clear picture of how, okay. how SMCs might be doing this. So, so I'm kind of optimistic. Oh, that's I'm, I'm optimistic because I think, I think the field is moving very, very fast. People are excited. It's really an exciting moment in, okay. in science. And I'm very happy to be kind of in this, in, the, in this, to be at this moment and, Speaking yeah. about exciting moments uh, and fast forwarding to 2020, uh, you just recently published a paper describing micro-C, uh, which came out in BioArchive. Um, mm -hmm. What led the, de the development of micro-C? Was it that HiC wasn't good enough to predict or to, to get the data what you predicted or what was the rationale behind uh, developing micro-C? Right. So, so MicroC uh, was originally developed uh, by Ole Rando's lab at UMass Medical Center, uh, one of Job Decker's colleagues, uh, jointly again with, with the Decker lab. Uh, the first MicroC was done on yeast, uh, and it was certainly a very high-resolution method, but uh, original MicroC wasn't as exciting as the MicroC of 2020, certainly. Because now, what, what it allows to see, it basically allows to, it kind of pushes high c to its absolute limit of resolution. Because the fundamental limit of high c in terms of linear resolution is one nucleosome. You can't go anywhere beyond, beyond one nucleosome. And micro-C made this jump. So, so now we have high c at one nucleosome resolution. Uh, and that's certainly a very, very exciting uh, moment. Uh, moreover, micro-C has an amazing dynamic range. Uh, it's five orders of magnitude in dynamic range uh, from the most frequent context to the least frequent context. So that's the dynamic range. 
Um, and why is this important? I think what's really important about microsee, and that kind of brings us to some some of the work that my lab is doing right now, and so it's still unpublished. We're trying to understand what makes different high C maps look somewhat different. Why microsee is slightly different? Why do we see certain features that we may not be able to see in high C? And the answer to this, we think, is in what we call contact radius. Remember, all these methods are proximity-mediated ligations, meaning that two regions that are sufficiently close are ligated together and give a productive read. Now, uh, uh, the question is, what is sufficiently close? And the definition of sufficiently close depends very much on the protocol, on the cross-linker, on the ligation protocol. Uh, and what we believe makes microsy special is a very small contact radius. So, it, in, in other words, microC captures regions that came, that came close, maybe as close as 50 nanometers apart. High C captures things that came close, that, came, that might be coming 150 nanometers apart, maybe somewhere between 100 and 200 nanometers apart. You may ask, so why is this important? I think it's incredibly important. Uh, to, to have as low contact radius as possible, because the, re the biological reality is somewhat different, or might be somewhat different than the pictures that we're getting from high C and even micro C. Uh, what, what do we want from these methods? We want, to we want two things. We want to understand how chromosomes are folded globally. And these methods are incredibly informative about, about the global architecture of chromosome organization, and their changes through cell cycle, uh, through development. The other thing that we want to understand, we would love to map specific interactions, for example, between regulatory regions and promoters, enhancer promoter interactions. So what does it mean that there is such functional interaction? It means that a protein complex that sits at the enhancer touches a protein complex that sits at the promoter. But protein complexes are relatively small compared to the scales at which chromosomes operate. So protein complexes might be the size of, say, 20 nanometers or 30 nanometers. That means that real physical interaction between, between two protein complexes requires two pieces of DNA to be 20, maybe 30 nanometers apart. Uh, and that's a, that's, a real, that's a real contact. That's a kind of proximity. Uh, High C and micro C certainly captures those interactions, but they capture much more. So they capture proximity rather than contact. It's like, in, my analogy would be, I'm now talking to, to my student, and the distance between us is, say, five meters. Uh, or, or I'm talking to an audience, I, I, I teach a class, the distance between my class is, say, 10 meters. Uh, and if somebody were to find out who, whom I'm talking to, and draw a radius of, say, one kilometer around me, they would capture many, many more people whom I'm not really talking to. And I think that's one of the limitations of some of the techniques that we, that we are uh, using, some of the data that we are getting now, is that they have very large contact radius or proximity radius. So they do tell who is around me. So if I'm in Cambridge, it would tell me, okay, you're somewhere talking to other people in Cambridge. So it's very informative about knowing who is close to whom. But it's not incredibly specific in terms of telling who are the real people that I'm transmitting information to. And that's why I think microsy made a major step forward by reducing this radius 
maybe not yet to, to, to the physical immediate context, but certainly approaching this. So this is a very uh, yeah exciting work that will be coming out from your lab then soon. But I have one last question. So in the last 35 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? I think okay. I think I think in in recent I think I think in recent years certainly loop extrusion has been the most the most important development, and the developing the concept of loop extrusion uh, and as a as a universal mechanism. I think the beauty the physical beauty of it. Maybe coming back to the to the start of the interview where I spoke that kind of I was always attracted to the idea of explaining by by complicated biological mechanisms by elegant physics. So I think that's that I, I certainly get a lot of satisfaction from loop extrusion because it's a mechanism that is, seems to be universal to chromosome folding. Uh, we analyze now loop extrusion in bacteria. Uh, loop SMC proteins are present in all forms of life. Uh, they're incredibly conserved, uh, maybe more cons certainly more conserved than polymerases are. So, so it looks like it's a universal mechanism in terms of or through, through evolution. It's a universal mechanism through the cell cycle because the same mechanism organizes, creates loops during interphase in, in eukaryotes and compacts chromosomes for mitosis. Uh, I'm sure there are other applications where nature took advantage of this amazing mechanism. Um, and so we're certainly very excited about this. I think. Uh, one aspect that we may not have mentioned in the interview is the recent developments in single molecule biophysics that really visualize and loop extrusion as a molecular process. And this uh, works from Case Decker's lab at UT Delft, uh, works from uh, uh, Jan Michael Peter's lab in Vienna, uh, from uh, Eric Green in Columbia, uh, from, uh, from a lab at UT, at UT Austin. Uh, so they actually saw loop extrusion in action, and that was that was really really exciting. I think not only for us but for the whole field, uh, and particularly they showed not not only condensin that operates in mitosis but also cohesin that operates in the interface can do loop extrusion. Uh, and you can't imagine what to what extent sort of the, our theory was met with with skepticism uh, in in 2015. So so. Uh, that certainly kind of closes closes a chapter uh, that loop extrusion is a mechanism. So so now we know that it's a real molecular mechanism. We're seeing it directly in single molecule experiments. It's not my work, so I'm just I'm just watching this. And an exciting work showing that loop extrusion operates in the extracts from from uh, Jan Bruges in Dresden. So so this are this are series of five fantastic papers uh, that that visualize this. Uh, without a kind of beyond loop extrusion, I think there are exciting developments in understanding a totally different level of organization that might be more important for epigenetics. And these are compartmental structures of chromosomes during interface. We see that histone marks dictate the way chromosomes are organized into heterochromatin, euchromatin, and maybe even more different compartments. And we just now start to understand Again, physical mechanisms and principles that drive this compartmentalization. What we also realized in the, in the work with Francois Spitz is that compartmentalization and loop extrusion are two parallel processes 
operating completely independent of each other. There is some interplay between them, but they largely perform different functions. Uh, and so now I think is, is an exciting moment for the field when we start seeing how compartmentalization started to, to appear. And in the next, in the in future, I think we'll start seeing what's the interplay between this higher order organization of chromosomes uh, into compartments and, and histone marks. And it might be a two-way road that compartments dictate histone marks and histone marks control compartmentalization. So, so I'm looking forward to, to, the, to, to kind of the next five years in this field, seeing kind of new physics emerging at, at this level, as well as kind of what, what we have achieved in uh, understanding loop exclusion. Okay, we'll make myself a note for 2025 and then I will call you again and then we will see okay. where, we <laughs> where we are. So thank you, Leonid, for the interview and for your time in those times. Great, great talking to you. Thank you so much. This was the 23rd episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, Motivations, at activemotif.com blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.